0: This is The Cable. Big bid on 10-year treasuries over the last week. Is this just a political fight, some political theatre? A lot of people saying, no, thank you, step back. You're saying, get it, why? Your connection
1: from the London market close to the US market action.
0: It is too easy just to blame Brexit. Surely it can't be anything means bye, bye, bye. The Cable. An historic moment from which there can be no turning back. With
1: Jonathan Farrow on Bloomberg Radio.
0: Good afternoon, good afternoon to the City of London. I'm Jonathan Farrow. You are listening to The Cable live across the capital on DAB Digital Radio. It's just gone 5pm in the city where the equity route shows no end in London. With the FTSE 100 down almost 1.5% at the close. The biggest one-day drop since April of last year. Losses across the continent and across pretty much every single sector on the European Stock 600. The DAX, the equity benchmark in Frankfurt, Germany down three quarters of 1% and more losses in the US equity market as well. The S&P 500 following up with its biggest one-week loss last week in more than two years, following that up with a drop of half of 1% on the S&P and a very volatile session as well, halfway through. The Dow down, down by 145 points. Some stability in the bond market, though. You might not find it in the equity market, but you will find it in fixed income. Treasury yields go nowhere on a 10-year at 2.84%. And in the FX market, reflecting some of that risk-off theme, Japanese yen, the outperformer in the FX markets, some yen strength. So that's the cross-asset story today. Let's get you up to speed on the top
2: stories. Here's Bloomberg's Charlie Pellett. And I thank you very much, Jonathan Farrow. Happy Monday to you. Economic momentum in the euro area rose in January to the fastest pace in almost 12 years, according to IHS Market. That led companies to add the most workers since the turn of the century. Europe's expansion has been helped by a pickup in global trade and ultra-low borrowing costs. There's speculation that Prime Minister May will not survive the the Conservative Party's civil war over Brexit. One potential leadership rival is Jacob Rees-Mogg, a lawmaker who has urged quitting the EU without a transition period. May's held on to her job so far by avoiding too much clarity on what the British divorce will look like. Bitcoin continuing its decline today. Lloyd's banking group joined a growing number of credit card issuers, halting purchases of cryptocurrencies with their cards. Bitcoin has erased more than 60% of its value from a record of 19,511 in December. The slide continues today. That is the latest from the News Desk. Jonathan Farrow, happy Monday back to you. Can you imagine, a man that um, likes getting credit cards,
0: Charlie Pellett, can you imagine using those credit cards to buy cryptocurrency? I
2: could not think of a stupider idea, and, and I'll tell you why, because it's so tough to peg precisely what the value is. Yeah. That said, the same guy said, what a stupid idea. Back in the 80s, I vividly remember having a credit card and purchasing gold on the credit card. Oh, you did that? And, you know, it was an unbelievable way Did you actually to, do that, Charlie? I did it, and, and, and I think back in retrospect how stupid that was because there was potentially downside risk. But what killed you was the commission cost. of It was something like 1% or 2% to buy, 3% to sell, maybe I've got it reversed. But, you know, gold had to move substantially in order for you to benefit.
0: So what happened with um, this speculative activity of yours in the 1980s? I I
2: think I had a paper loss, but I wasn't concerned because, number one, I had to spend a certain amount on the credit card to hit the point bonus, and I also— Hang on a second. You've
0: been doing this point (laughs) bonus stuff since the 1980s?
2: Yeah, probably. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a long time. But, but, you know, you get the credit card, you do whatever they tell you to do. So even though I lost money on paper— It didn't bother me because I netted enough points that I thought it was worthwhile. Charlie Separate topic. How much of the Super Bowl did you catch last Um, night?
0: About five minutes. And what did you think of it? Not much. I watched the first play. All right. Um, They um, kicked the ball. Okay. And then someone caught it. And then he ran up the field. What? And then someone came across and tackled him and took him out. And then I said goodbye to my mates. And I went up to bed and started reading. What, What
2: percentage of our UK listenership do you think watched the game?
0: Um, I'd say I'm just going to pluck it out of thin air and say 25%. Uh,
2: I think that's as fair a guess as any. I, 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 I've got I've to, you have know,
0: no idea. Yeah, I have no idea As our no. listeners, it, it, yeah. could, it could be even lower than that. I imagine in the population it's a whole lot lower than that. Um, I, I'm just sort of putting put numbers out of thin air. Charlie Pellet's it's great um, to have you with us. I'm going to ask Marcus Ashworth and Michael Houston whether they watched any of the Super Bowl um, last night. Marcus?
3: I was going to say uh, sell that number at 25%. Uh, no,
1: and not a minute. I think
3: we all did uh, in the past and thoroughly sort of enjoyed it. But there's no way around uh, getting up on a Monday morning with about four or three hours sleep. Before watching I agree, it's not going to work for a game maybe, that we don't
0: like that much. Michael, well, we,
3: we like it, but just not at that time. And just so they could make it a little bit shorter than eight hours or however long it goes on
0: for.
4: Yeah, I'm a seller at 25. As You're well, a seller
0: right? at 25. Yeah. Why is there always a market in everything we do, guys? <laughs> Seriously, <laughs> we I'm do for just a make I'm making up numbers here. I've got no idea what the makeup of our listeners are today and how many of them actually tuned in. See, I have to get up That's at five nice. o'clock in
4: the morning, so...
0: I'm with uh, you. I yeah. had to do the same thing. I wasn't staying up to watch a game I don't particularly love. Um, Jensen, especially with the price action on Friday coming into Monday, yeah. Marcus, walk me through the price action you're seeing on the screen today and whether we can take some comfort from the fact that, yes, the drama continues in equities, but the bond market's stabilised.
3: Uh, look, uh, I, I just think
0: that bond markets
3: are normalizing. They're doing exactly what they should be doing. It, it's been a remarkably long time for them to snap back to to the real world. The U.S. Treasury two-year yield has been climbing um, ad nauseum, really, and the 10-year has been ignoring it. And then all of a sudden, it's not anymore off the back of that uh, average earnings print in the payroll report on Friday. That's caused um, perhaps a slightly overreaction from the, the equity market, but that's got its own problems. It's been overbought for too long and it needs to calm down. Yes, there's, there's excellent news coming through from the economy, but you know equities have run ahead of themselves, so they've just got themselves to blame, really. And I think that'll work its way out. A bond sell-off shouldn't and doesn't need to in this circumstance mean a long-term pain for stocks. For, for bonds itself, uh, again, it, I just think it's a normalization of the curve, back to being a, a steeper level than it should be. It shouldn't be looking at anything like a recession as it almost was for a while. Uh, twos, tens, and um, I think therefore we've seen, particularly the reaction in Europe today, is just a, uh, a realization that yeah, you if U.S. yields bounce out that, that yeah. everyone has to follow them a bit, but reality they're
0: different stories, uh, different strokes, different folks really in Europe and and indeed in Japan compared I, to the U.S. I think it's worth reflecting on the fact that Michael, the best year in the bull market on the S and P 500 was one of the worst years for treasuries. It was 2013, mm. where we had a real treasury market route, and and the equity market search so as, as Marcus points out
4: high yields don't have to mean bad equity performance no they don't but you have to put the equity market performance in the context of the rise that we've seen in US treasury yields over the past 2 or 3 weeks and last week alone the 10 year jumped 18 basis points you know when was the last time you saw a move like that i would imagine it was quite some time ago um, and actually this year we've gone from 2.4 to 2. 8, 5.
0: And close to 2% in September, Michael, so it's been quite mm. a turn.
4: Yeah, it has. Yeah, so, I mean, it's gone up nearly by 40%. So that sort of move, you can't just dismiss. And when you look at the S&P 500 and you look at where the price is relative to its 200-week moving average, I think investors are suffering from a little bit of vertigo because um, beginning of February, it was 800 points away. It's never been that far away, ever.
0: Marcus, looking at this situation right now, would you define it purely as a rates-driven sell-off or is it something else? Is it more than that?
3: Well, I think there is a little bit more to it in the sense that um, equities just needed a push, and whatever the push, where it came from, they were, they were due a sell-off anyway, uh, a modest correction, call it what you want it to. It doesn't have to be anything serious. Of course, with all these things, if it does continue, if people really do start to think this is a whole shape-shift in economic thinking and... And they actually are linking higher bond yields to, uh, therefore, lower stock prices as a causal link because of a a change in Fed thinking about how the economy is. That's a different story altogether. I I don't think that's going to happen, but you
0: can never be 100% sure. If it continues, then you have to change your mind along with it. Bloomberg Gaffler economist sticking with me. Alongside Michael Houston, Chief Market Analyst for CMC Markets in London. Next up on a cable, a slowdown in UK services taking some shine off the economic optimism ahead of Governor Carney's next rate decision. That conversation's next. You're listening to The Cable. This is Bloomberg Radio.
1: This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow on Bloomberg Radio.
0: A lot of data out in Europe today, really firm on the continent, on the Eurozone. In the UK, a little bit of disappointment. Services growth weakened more than expected at the start of the year. IHS's Markets Purchasing Managers Index found to 53 in January from 54.2 in December. That's the lowest since September 2016 and well below the 54.1 economists had forecast. The disappointing PMI readings are in contrast to data showing the economy expanded 0.5% in the fourth quarter and employment growth was far stronger than anticipated. So does it take some of the shine off the case for another move over at the Bank of England with Governor Carney? Expected by some to set up a rate hike, not this week, but in the next inflation report. Uh, joining me today, Marcus Ashworth, Bloomberg Gadfly columnist and Michael Houston, Chief Market Analyst for CMC Markets in London. Michael, was the case... For another rate hike, an imminent one from the Bank of England, ever building. And if it was, what does the latest data mean?
4: No, it wasn't. I didn't really expect that we were going to get a rate hike in May, and I still don't think so. And I think you have to look through this weakness in the January numbers because we saw a similar softening in the services PMIs at the beginning of last year. And then we got a growth acceleration as we went through 2017, but I am concerned about the rise in inflationary pressure, particularly in input prices that we've been seeing, particularly in the manufacturing sector that we saw at the end of last week, Um, but also um, in the services PMIs as well. So I think Mr Carney's got a pretty tricky tightrope to walk on Thursday in trying to temper rate expectations while not undermining the pound because I think one of the key reasons why inflation will start to come back to target yeah, will be the strength of the pound and it is up 18% over the last 12 months and that's got to have some form of effect but at the moment I'm not really seeing it in the input numbers.
0: Marcus what are your thoughts and to, to Michael's point this time last year we were trading around 125 on cable we're now just north of 140 it's quite a change.
3: Yeah, I was a big fan of sterling by sterling around the 120 level. Um, I perhaps was a little bit ahead of myself trying to uh, say enough is enough around the 140 level. There's two schools of thought, and I'm not quite sure where the Bank of England is. I don't think it knows itself, to be quite frank. I-, I was of the camp that they shouldn't have raised rates in November, and really through this whole Brexit process, they would be smart by doing as little as possible until they are in control and knowledge of the full facts. However... Um, they did clearly uh, move far too aggressively in August 2016 po- uh, post the Brexit referendum, shucked the kitchen sink at it, and they've realised that they had to take that back. They've tried to use language to suggest that that's not what they're doing in X and Y and Z, but uh, talk about productivity or some other rubbish. But um, if they come out uh, on the February 8th uh, inflation report and are more hawkish and clearly out the case for another rate hike, uh, perhaps as soon as, as May, some people even say March, then I'll be proved wrong in the sense that they yeah. do have a clear understanding. I will disagree with them still, but the point is is that the Bank of England has, has, has gained a level of confidence and it wishes to accelerate its uh, uh, its rate hike schedule. When they did this in November and their hike rates, they said they would be looking at two further hikes over the next three years. That does not suggest they need to do it uh, within six months. And
0: I would be surprised if they do that but uh, as i said i could well be wrong on this one it gives um. it just raise some questions though marcus why we've got this sterling strength then if you don't believe in the two hike story anytime soon at the bank of england at least you don't think it's going to come this year then why is cable up to 140 when the well, politics is hardly improving either it,
3: it, it, it's very much dollar weakness and you, yeah. can, you can look at it in against the euro against the yen or against sterling the dollar is weak and that's what's the by the far the largest uh part behind it. Yeah, there are some reasons uh, for Sterling to be weak, uh, sorry, to be stronger against dollar because of these changing rate expectations, whether they play out or not. We shall see, and clearly there is better economic... Uh, as someone said, we're in the middle lane. are supposed to be in the slow lane. Um, so, in that context, you can semi-justify why Sterling has gone up, certainly from 120 up to sort of the mid-130s. Um, the last bit, it's dollar dollar weakness. So don't if you look against the euro
0: or trade weight index sterling is flat as you like marcus ashworth of bloomberg alongside michael houston of cmc next up jay powell in the first day at his job as the chief of the fed
1: this is the cable with jonathan farrow on bloomberg radio
0: Good afternoon, good afternoon to the City of London. I'm Jonathan Ferro. You are listening to the cable live across the capital on DAB Digital Radio. Bit of a vicious sell off, if you want to call it that. Um, if you like your hyperbole, the equity market down by 1.5% on a FTSE 100 today. Biggest one day loss in over a year. We're down about 108 points. Losses across the board in the United States of America. The SP down 8 tenths. Dow, down by one full percentage point. In the FX market, sterling weaker. It was south of 140 very briefly today. We're now just north of 140 at 140.17, down by almost three quarters of one percent as we await Governor Carney's news conference this Thursday as the Bank of England delivers the inflation report. Governor Carney doing his thing in the United States. Chair Yellen is out. Chair Powell is in. Chairman Jerome Powell sworn in as the chairman of the Federal Reserve. He's inheriting a US economy in its third largest expansion on record with unemployment and inflation near historically low levels. To discuss the challenges ahead for Jay Powell, Marcus Ashworth, Bloomberg Gadfly columnist and Michael Houston, Chief Market Analyst for CMC Markets in London. Michael, there is a narrative out there that the new Fed chair and is a lot like the old Fed chair. Do you subscribe to that narrative?
4: I think so, yes. And, uh, well, you know, what a, what a great birthday present it is for Mr Powell. On his 65th birthday, or the day after his 65th birthday, he's walked into the job and he's just seen the Dow Jones drop 600 points. Nice little sell for him, yeah. And then a little bit more. So, um, yeah, I mean, the Fed's there to promote price stability, financial stability. I think though it's going to be less about Mr Powell and more about how the FOMC views the burgeoning economic recovery in the United States and whether or not these wage rises that we saw in December and January are the thin end of a wedge that pushes wage growth through 3% because if it does prompt the Fed to push the Fed funds rate up quite significantly over the next 12 months, he could come into conflict with the White House.
0: So let's start with the markets. You mentioned that, and then we can deal with the the economics and the reaction function of the Federal Reserve. Marcus, as far as the markets are concerned, is there anything in the price action of the last week and a little bit that should push the Federal Reserve to to be a little bit more cautious about the next move? No. No. I think that the 2.9
3: print of the average hourly earnings is going to be um, a level of confidence which will make them nail on three um, rate hikes this year Uh, and I think whether they go for a fourth which is entirely possible is really quite, uh, Mr. Powell has to make a decision how he wants to come out of the gate here, calming things down. Um, giving the market something to believe that he has something of the Janet Yellen in him and predecessors like Bernanke, um, I either put there that, that is always there if markets have a bit of a wobble, or whether he wants to set out at stall and say, "Look, we need to crack on with with uh, controlling inflation here because the economy is going great." You know, is he his own man? Is he, is he sort of a uh, yellow mark too? Or is he a Trump puppet? And that's why I think... Big question, a Marcus. Merv-
0: Mervyn King wrote a Bloomberg View article very yeah, recently. The former Bank of England governor saying the biggest job he's got is to defend the independence of the Fed. Would you agree with that?
3: Yes, and and his biggest piece of advice was to uh, to read lots um, and, and, and do his own homework, which I, I think uh, Jay Powell will do that. I think he's... Um, Not quite so reliant on uh, econometric models as as maybe his predecessors have been. I think that's a good thing. Therefore, he should be a stable uh, hand in a crisis. I think that's what uh, President Trump saw in him. But, you know, we're not in a crisis here. We're just in a little testing moment. And, you know, he's not set to speak for for the next few weeks. But uh, when he does, um, you know, he's going to set out his stall as to what type of person what type of Fed he wants to see. And I I think the, the simplest thing and most logical thing will be continuance and Act very Janet Yellen-like uh, from the start. I think that'll that'll calm things down. So I don't think he'll read too much into these things, and I think he'll he'll try and give an em- emphasis of a um, Fed uh, on a very clear and well telegraphed um, pace. And that that is what Yellen's legacy has been: is that she has managed to take from the. Um, doubting that we all had about Bernanke whether he would ever really get round to raising rates, she's managed to switch to a Fed which over the last year has become totally priced in by the market, and the market's very confident what they're thinking and why.
0: Is this a predictable Federal Reserve for you, Michael Hewson, or has it become more unpredictable?
4: I think it's well, it's predictable in the context of its guidance over the course of the next 12 months. But do they have to raise rates more than three times this year? Couldn't they accelerate their? Um, balance sheet reduction program is another way of maybe pushing up um, pushing up rates it well, doesn't necessarily ask, have to be you don't necessarily have to use the rate option do you
0: well let me ask another question is it their job this year To actually tighten financial conditions because they've been able to hike interest rates and have this really counterintuitive response to the market where financial conditions have loosened even though they've been hiking interest rates. Michael, do they become more cautious about that, especially if we get that inflation surprise and it does
4: actually materialise? I think they might have to be, but at the moment monetary conditions still remain fairly loose. The ECB is still pumping money into the global economy and the Bank of Japan slightly less so, given the fact that it capped its yields at the end of last week. So I'm not overly concerned at the moment about liquidity drying up. But I think we are going to face a very interesting next 12 months, particularly in the context of what the Bank of Japan does and what the European Central Bank does. And I think it could be something that they do that might uh, trigger a little bit of the collie wobbles if you like. Marcus, your thoughts on that?
3: Oh, I don't know. I mean, I think uh, <laughs> uh, either way, I'm not sure.
4: What I would say, though, what I would say, though, John, is that we do need to see this market correction, and I'm looking at the U.S. markets. And for me, they are still too frothy. And I think we could do with a decent shakeout because I think at the moment, investors have become far too complacent about the upward trajectory in US markets. But where and, do you see
0: the complacency more so, Michael? In, in equities or the bond market?
4: Oh, in equities. Equities every day of the week. Yeah? Yeah. I mean, you you look at the way the market reacted last week. Bearish key week, bearish key week reversals on the S&P, the Dow... Um and that suggests to me that we could well see further losses. Um nothing you know, nothing too drastic, but certainly at least another five percent. Gents, great to catch up with you. Michael
0: Houston, Chief Market Analyst for CMC Markets in London, alongside Marcus Ashworth, Bloomberg Gad- Bloomberg Gadfly columnist. Gents, really appreciate your time on what's been a really interesting couple of days in financial markets across the continent Cheers, and Sean. in the United States as well. Next up on the programme, Chair Yellen's final act. It was to uh how that Wells Fargo couldn't grow anymore by capping their assets um, a big shakeup in financials in the United States We'll have a chat about that next. you're listening to the cable this is Bloomberg Radio
1: this is the cable with Jonathan Farrow on Bloomberg Radio
0: good afternoon good afternoon to the city of London I'm Jonathan Farrow you are listening to the cable live across the capital on DAB Digital Radio. It's just gone 5.30 in London. The FTSE 100 suffering one of its biggest daily losses in well over a year. The FTSE 100 down by 1.5%, off by 108 points at the close. The DAX down by just over three quarters of 1%. Losses across the continent, losses across the stocks, 600 pretty much every single sector in negative territory in today's session. The S&P 500 also weaker, following the biggest one-week loss on the S&P 500 in more than two years. Down eight tenths of 1%, down 1% on the Dow just no stability in the equity market yet in the bond market there is some treasury yields kind of go nowhere today we're down about a half of a basis point to 2.84% I'll round that up for you in the FX market though the dollar stage and a bit of a comeback against most major currencies with the exception of say the Japanese yen reflecting that risk off feel cable back to 140.19 we were as low as 139.87 we're down by 7 tenths of 1% on the screen at the moment and in the commodity market just to round things out for you crude bleed. 6773 on Brent down by 1.22% and WTF by 1.8 ish off to uh, $64.26. So that gives you a cross-asset feel. Let's get you some top stories, shall we, and say hello
2: to Bloomberg's Charlie Perry. And I thank you very much, Jonathan Farrow. Economic momentum in the euro area rose in January to the fastest pace in almost 12 years. According to IHS Market, that led companies to add the most workers since the turn of the century. Europe's expansion has been helped by a pickup in global trade along with ultra-low borrowing costs. There is speculation that Prime Minister May will not survive the Conservative Party's civil war over Brexit. May has held on to her job so far by avoiding too much clarity on what the British divorce will look like. Bitcoin continuing its decline today as Lloyd's banking group joins a growing number of credit card issuers, halting purchases of cryptocurrencies with their cards. Bitcoin has erased more than 60% of its value from a record $19,500 in December. Rival coins also retreating today Ripple losing as much as 14% Ethereum and Litecoin Also weaker as well That is the latest from the news desk Jonathan Farrow, back to you Charlie, thank you For our listeners just tuning in Charlie
0: Pellet admitted that he's been doing this credit card thing since the 1980s <laughs> well. um, And that the, um, the new generation The millennials are buying Bitcoin on their credit cards Charlie was buying physical gold on his credit card, and, and when was it?
2: 1987? Yeah, no, probably late 80s. But you know, late when I think 80s. back, it was so stupid. Not necessarily because of the concept, which I still think was probably based in logic, but the commission costs to buy and to sell. And as I mentioned, it was something like three percent on the way in, two percent on the way out, or vice know versa. I didn't they did was,
0: the the air mileage scheme in the late 80s. <laughs> no, it cards. was.
2: It, it may not have been that. What, what was is, it? No, 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 no. At that point, at that point, you did have uh, a number of of uh, of airlines where it if wasn't air existed, miles. I'm sure. Well, but but they were it. they were there but also too it was the benefit when you hit a certain threshold for spending so a person of modest means could go ahead and spend $5000 on a credit card which you wouldn't typically do in everyday purchases. But which you, could, could you, could,
0: you could buy a nice car back in the 1980s for $5,000. Uh, well, yeah, exactly, exactly. So, so anyway, You, you but were buying gold instead.
2: Yeah, you know, I did it once. What twice. did you get, though, once you spent $5,000? What did you get? Yeah, it was probably, you know, like enough points to get to a, a couple of hotel rooms or something. Or, or you know, like today, nothing has changed substantially, but it was also getting money back, you know, a $100 bonus or a couple of hundred bucks. I mean, I mean, I remember vividly back with Pan Am, they had a scheme yeah. where you could go ahead and if I could convince you guys to get the credit card I would get a round trip so what I would do is instead of convincing you I would pay your annual membership fee for the American Express card to get the free trip on Pan Am to London <laughs> Oh my God! Right. so that way but it was $150 out of, oh, that it was, is so but good. it was $150 out of pocket for a ticket that at the yes. time was probably $300 round trip $400 so you get the card I'll pay up front I get the round trip ticket
0: I could spend the whole day listening to Charlie Pellett stories but I know, I know you've got to go and do like news bulletins for half the world um over the next couple of hours i love doing so, it i know you do right. so i appreciate your time my absolute pleasure thank sir. you charlie yep. always great to catch up with you um can i just take a moment to welcome back bloomberg's lisa brambit's who was Aww. off all last week being really lazy <laughs> um has decided to come back
5: <laughs> as for always yeah i just decided you know i don't want to get out no, of No you were this very week.
0: poorly you were very poorly um i, I just heard you say are oh, and i thought you're dumb. Get you back just quickly. Aww. But no, thank you for yeah, coming in no, today. No, of
5: course, my pleasure. You, so are, happy to be here. Mu- are you much better? I'm, I'm totally better. Good. Yes. There is
0: a really bad flu going around and it's serious stuff here in the United States get of America at the moment. Get a flu shot. It, get
5: a flu shot. But
0: it's the, I understand that it's a different strain yeah, of flu, it won't and protect the flu you. shot is not going to protect you. It's that not going to
5: protect you, but get it anyway.
0: Why? <laughs> just to make yourself feel just, just- good.
5: If it could reduce your chances a little bit. I've got or-
0: Tom Keene in the radio booth every morning at the moment, Vince, coughing his guts up. Oh, good so for you. I, so I'm having like full doses of vitamin C as soon as I step out of the radio I booth. have to
5: go use his uh, desk right after you I'm looking for the wipes, yeah. So
0: he, he got you ill. That's I'm a guess. great no, diet. No, no.
6: You just go around from studio to studio, catch what everybody has, and then you don't eat for a Seriously.
0: week. That's basically it. That's basically it. I mean, it's a Lisa great looks diet.
6: amazing. That She always does. Lisa <laughs> always cool.
0: looks fantastic. But she's looking especially right. amazing now. Yeah. Well, a few pounds. She, She's like, shut up and talk about markets,
5: Markets. Let's talk markets.
0: Back to airline miles. B-A-B South, Vince. This ain't the 1980s, all right? It's 2018, and Lisa wants to talk about stocks. Wells Fargo, hammered today, Lisa. Hammered. Um, was this a parting shot from Chair Yellen? And, and just walk me through what the Fed did. And let's take stock and think about what's actually going on here with the Federal Reserve.
5: Well, see, this is a little bit confusing because all of the information about Wells Fargo came out a while ago. So why now? And I think that this is the big question. Uh, Why did Janet Yellen do this on her way out? Uh, They had been looking at a review, and this is really a review of the board, right? And and the leadership at the very top of Wells Fargo. Uh, And basically it's an accusation that they really did not clean house, they didn't do enough, and that they would not be allowed to expand... Until uh, they showed further progress. Although further progress will be evaluated by the Fed, and there's been a changing in the, the guards. So there's a question of does this sort of Start a new path for the Fed, where they're going to uh, take an even more aggressive role in bank regulation, or is this just a parting shot of Janet Yellen uh, as she as she leaves? And and also, why now? Again, I, because they have taken some 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 measures. Yeah. Basically, this is saying it's not enough, and frankly, your leadership isn't good enough.
0: Uh, and let's be clear here: this isn't a small company; it's a three hundred billion dollar bank, and today alone, it's down. billion in market cap. It's down like 8%. It's a huge move, Vince. And to Lisa's point, is it a parting shot from Chair Yellen? Many people thought that she'd signed her resignation letter shortly after, and I think it was actually during Jackson Hole, where she wrote that big speech about financial stability. It was a big speech about regulation, financial regulation. And she was endorsing the current regime, basically. And for many people, that is not what this administration wanted. So is this a parting shot from her, one? And two, is this something that endures or changes under Chairman Powell,
6: well, I think it's uh, it is a parting shot of sorts you get with Fed officials and and the like. I mean, I remember distinctly when uh, Lagarde was. Uh, the finance minister of France, and then she changes over to take over the IMF, and, and about a month before she makes the move, the banking system is sound, everything's totally fine. Day one at the IMF, the banks are in trouble, they're well undercapitalized. Well, it's like in their first interview,
0: apart. stocks are overvalued, so is real estate. Now, to be fair, she said it as the Fed chairman as well. She did,
6: and she said, they're they're not They're high. She said, they're not overvalued. She said, they're high. So I think you get long, you, you have people in situations that can't say what they really mean. Yeah. And once they get the shackles taken off, it's like, thank God I can
0: say It's well, a it's position been of massive responsibility it is. To, to be the head of the Federal Reserve. Guys, great to have you with me. Uh, a lot to navigate through today. Vincent Signorello, our global macro strategist for Bloomberg, will stay with us alongside Lisa Bravitz, the host of Bloomberg Markets Radio, who I'm really pleased to say is fit and healthy and back with us in the radio studio. You are listening to the cable. This is Bloomberg Radio.
1: This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow on Bloomberg Radio.
0: This equity market route, if you want to call it that, is not putting the brakes on mergers and acquisitions. Broadcom trying to force Qualcomm to come to the bargaining table for what would be the biggest technology deal ever, and they're remaining hostile. The chipmaker has raised its takeover bid to around $121 billion in cash and stock. Qualcomm, which rejected an earlier proposal, says it will review this one. Um, Lisa, I always like to use just the price action in stocks. As the story to tell of what is happening. Now, Qualcomm is trading at $63.60. And the previous offer by Broadcom, I believe, was $70. The new one, I believe, is about $81 a share. We're trading nowhere near the offer price that Broadcom is offering to stump up. That's the market screaming, we don't think this deal gets done, right. isn't it? Well, there's a big
5: question of whether Qualcomm will sign off on this right i mean there's been enough resistance so there's a question now though i don't totally understand why uh they would reject it and i was talking 82 dollars a share i should correct myself 82 dollars a share. yeah, yeah. Um, is the I, offer i don't i don't understand why qualcomm wants to remain independent i was talking with shira oviday of bloomer gadfly earlier about this and she was saying that qualcomm has this grand plan to basically uh be a master of the internet of things of sort of the the sort of synergy between your phone that's synced with your Connected chair with your car with whatever other uh, devices that you have, and that there are going to be so many more chips in just your everyday life, and they want to be a part of that. But I don't understand why them solo uh, is is better than together, especially given the fact that Apple is uh, designing more of their chips and trying to make more inroads there, so they don't have to outsource the business to the Qualcomm and Broadcoms of the world.
0: So for anyone that's not been following this closely, in the semiconductor space, there is this massive amount of M&A taking place. And literally, it's deal on top of 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 deal. Four Uh,
5: Four companies becoming one.
0: Yeah, essentially. And four companies that still haven't closed previous deals. So before Broadcom can buy Qualcomm, Qualcomm is actually in the middle of trying to execute not a small acquisition but a 47 billion dollar purchase of a company called nxp um, <laughs> nxp shareholders arguing that qualcomm's 100 dollars share offer must be improved um, broadcom saying the deal needs to either be concluded at the current price offer or be terminated for the deal above that to go through and i've been asking the question for months now lisa when will these companies just focus on the deals they've already agreed to before they start piling up more deals?
5: Right. And so we can actually see what they look like, what's their culture and, uh, you know, how are they going to navigate the integration of the different cultures? Look, I think that there's a lot of concern right now. First of all, with Broadcom and Qualcomm, uh, there are some litigation issues that uh, certainly Broadcom needs to clear up with its main uh, client. Um, But I I think that the larger issue here is you know this is a tough business it is expensive scale is the key to surviving and thriving especially as you get companies like apple looking to do more of the work themselves yeah uh so you know Because it is a scale business, they're all trying to get as much as they can. And at what point a regulator is going to step in? And Do they care?
0: I honestly don't know. I mean, I asked the question today whether this was the Valiant of the semiconductors industry. And obviously, for anyone that doesn't recall, Valiant was in the healthcare industry and they went around buying company after company after company after company. And Ed Hammond of the deals team pushed back quite rightly, said this is different, Because whilst the strategy might look the same, ultimately what Valiant did with the companies they acquired was strip them, cut costs, make them more efficient and do so aggressively. And if they get hold of Qualcomm, Qualcomm has such a big R&D division element to the company. You have to keep the people. That's ultimately what you're buying. There isn't going to be a stripping asset story.
5: Well, and and, and there's a scale story here too that's different than Valiant because Valiant just basically uh, assumed a whole host of different pharmaceutical arms. uh, So there isn't the same kind of scale aspect that you're going to get here.
0: Guys, really fascinating stuff. The uh, the M&A activity just not... Pausing, even with this big equity market move we're witnessing over the last couple of weeks. Maybe there's a signal in that. Lisa Bravett sticking with me alongside Vincent Signorella of Bloomberg. Next up on the programme, we'll bring you the week ahead and talk about what's happening in global markets at the moment, not just in equities, but some of the resiliency and stability that we're seeing elsewhere. That's next.
1: This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow on Bloomberg Radio.
0: Good afternoon. Good afternoon. To the uh, City of London, I'm Jonathan Ferro. You're listening to The Cable, live across the capital on DAB Digital Radio. Really couple of interesting days um, in financial markets worldwide. Over the next couple of days, a lot of things taking place for our UK audience, our listeners in London. Look out for the Bank of England rate decision and inflation report on Thursday. Then on Friday, we get some UK industrial production data as well. There are a couple of things to keep an eye on in the United Kingdom. As far as the market action is concerned, I've got to say the dramas and equity don't see much of it elsewhere. Lisa to your world, to the world of credit, do you see much drama in credit compared to, say, the equity market?
5: No, <laughs> in a word. I mean, look, I think that I think it's important to keep watching the spreads, the extra yield that you earn on high yield bonds over benchmark rates, because you did see an increase in that, and supposedly uh, one of the benefits of high yield bonds in a rising rate environment usually is they have this cushion of extra yield over benchmark rates. So if the economy is generally growing and you see benchmark rates increase, ostensibly that extra cushion of yield can contract. So it sort of serves as a buffer. But what you're seeing right now is that extra cushion of yield uh, increase. In other words, people are demanding more as rates rise. And so this raises a question of if this continues, uh, what does that mean? What does that mean, especially for the most leveraged companies that are going to have a a much harder time refinancing at these higher rates?
0: Can I ask a dumb question? And, And I'm leaning on you because you're the expert here. If sprints are still tight, But ultimately, you're looking at a spread over treasuries, and treasuries have moved like 15 basis points in a week. Isn't that masking a sell-off overall in high-yield credit? And what I mean by that is you can say that spreads have remained tight, but ultimately, the whole universe has just lifted up 15 to 20 basis points, right? Absolutely. So
5: the question is do you see that extra cushion shrink? Does it stay the same? If it stays the same, that means that borrowing costs are still rising, yeah. right? But if it's not, And then it just means that it's not absorbing. Or what you're seeing right now, you're seeing the extra cushion increase as well. So you're seeing the extra yields that is being demanded of these companies rise in tandem with the rising rates. So that's a double whammy. There's a question of, you know, at what point uh, this doesn't make sense? What, what point are people basically saying the creditworthiness of these companies Fundamentally is being eroded by higher borrowing costs possibly because it fundamentally challenges their credit profile that it's going to cost more for them to refinance and that's going to make it more difficult for them to survive. So, you know, There's a question here. If that continues, that edifies the sell-off in stocks. You're not really seeing it dramatically yet, Um, but you are seeing some outflows from the biggest high-yield bond ETFs. And then the other question that I have is emerging markets credit, which has been one of the biggest beneficiaries of the past year, it flows uh, investor money. And you know, if you see rates in the U.S. start to really rise, why wouldn't people take their money and go back to the U.S. uh, and making it, uh, you know, Frankly, creating less uh, less demand for the overseas credit.
6: Vince, well, they they will come back to the U.S. when real yields approach a level that's attractive to them. Why don't we have? A, Are we there yet? Not yet. No, we're be, we're dealing with two Sound issues. Sound like a
0: child in the back of the car, then Vince? Yeah, we're not. Except there a, yet. Except <laughs> we're like twenty five years ago, it was about destination, <laughs> and now it's about bombed
6: you. The the issue we're dealing with, the the issue that foreign investors, international investors are dealing with, we're dealing with an oversupply of treasuries. We're dealing with it from coming from the the budget deficit. We're dealing with it with potential infrastructure build, which is going to increase the deficit. And we're dealing with it from the Federal Reserve, which is exiting the balance sheet. So all of this is hitting a market that's just, it's being saturated essentially. So with that, with the with the stock market coming lower as yeah. as investors are selling the dollar to hedge their U.S. assets is that pressure is going to continue until we reach a level in yields where foreign investors are willing to accept the risk that their capital losses will not be eroded.
0: Okay, so let's step back and take stock of everything that's happened in the last few days. Vince, is there anything to be concerned about? at this point, or is this actually quite healthy that we're finally getting markets to, to operate as normal?
6: I think we're just seeing a healthy correction. As, as Janet Yellen said, valuations are high. Um, you know, Someone was telling me just this morning that the current valuations of the equity market or prior to this big sell-off were something like 25 times earnings. That's similar to what they were in 1987 before we had a 20-odd percent correction. So to see a correction is 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 totally totally normal the question is what becomes a correction and what becomes a, a massive sell off i i don't think we're in the major sell off situation unless we lose significant or I should say further lose credibility in the current administration in the US government.
0: Lisa, another question I've got for you is what would it take for the Federal Reserve to look at this situation and say, we need to take a step back? Um, clearly, it's very early days. It's an equity market move that amounts to not even 5% yet. But but at some point, do you envisage a situation, a bite point, where the individuals at the Fed say, don't like what I'm seeing in markets? And where does it need to come from? Does it need to come more so from credit than, say, equity? You know, look,
5: Jay Powell has a really tough job. He's got a much tougher job than Janet Yellen does. and some, some could argue. Um, I think that the, the the problem here for them is that they're not just dealing with, you know, stock prices and bond prices. They're dealing with actual signs of inflation for the first time since the crisis, right? I mean, you got uh, that hourly wage read on Friday, which some people think of as not a game changer, but certainly something that changes the equation somewhat dramatically. So if the Fed were to not move as many times as perhaps the market's pricing in right now, uh, simply because the stock market was selling off or bond yields were going too fast, they risk getting behind the curve with respect to inflation if what we're seeing with respect to hourly wages and other signs of inflation are real and have have longer legs yeah so th- it's 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 a very they're they're facing a tough tough period right now
0: guys really appreciate um your time this week hopefully you can come back and see us Vince you're busy this week I understand I'm, I'm actually uh um, I have I'm on vacation you're, you're gonna wake up for you where are you going going to Scottsdale are you who yes. with Nice. Sit in the sun, play nice. a little tennis. Good. I'm, I'm a little bit jealous. Have fun. <laughs> I'll, I'll Think of you, us. I'll send you a few pictures. I'll log into the Bloomberg and you know, <laughs> send us a postcard. I, I'll, I'll, I'll check read it, well it out on air. You, yeah. All right, Vince. Thank you. Lisa's going to come back when she can. And now she's fit and healthy. We're going to make sure she's on all the time. Vince Signorella, global macro strategist for Bloomberg. Lisa Abramowitz, host of Bloomberg Markets, right here in the United States on Bloomberg Radio. This is Bloomberg Radio. This is, Radio. This is the cable.